This is DW News live from Berlin. Russian President Vladimir Putin speaks out on the standoff over Ukraine. He says the U.S. is ignoring Moscow security concerns, but signals Russia is ready for another round of negotiations. Also coming up, the situation is under control, says President Mbalo of Guinea-Bissau after a coup attempt in the West African country. He says drug traffickers could be to blame, but questions are growing over what really happened. Athletes are preparing to go for gold at the Winter Olympics in Beijing, but political issues and the ongoing pandemic are causing headaches for organizers. And sell them, sterilize them, or save them. The dilemma over what to do with the dozens of hippos first brought to Colombia by drug lord Pablo Escobar. I'm Sumi Somaskanda. Thank you for joining us. Russian President Vladimir Putin has accused the U.S. and its allies of ignoring Moscow security concerns in his first public remarks on the standoff over Ukraine in weeks. He said the West was using Ukraine to hinder Russia's development. Putin signaled he was ready to continue negotiations, but so far neither side has been willing to budge on their positions. For weeks, he has left the talking to others. But now, President Vladimir Putin has accused the United States of trying to drag Russia into conflict. The United States' most important goal is to contain Russia. That's the thing. In this sense, Ukraine itself is just a tool to achieve this goal. This can be done in different ways. One of them is to draw us into armed conflict. Across the border in Kiev, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson offered a show of support to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Johnson warned that war would be a lose-lose outcome. Russian invasion of Ukraine would be a political disaster, a humanitarian disaster. In my view, it would also be, for Russia, for the world, a military disaster as well. And... Uh, it, uh, the uh, potential invasion completely uh, flies in the face of President Putin's claims to be acting in the interests of the Ukrainian people. Ukraine is not completely relying on diplomacy to protect them. President Zelensky announced a huge addition to his nation's army. We will create a new political cooperation format in Europe between Ukraine, Great Britain and Poland. Within the next three years, we will increase the number of the Ukrainian armed forces by 100,000 professional soldiers. In a video released just hours before Boris Johnson's visit, soldiers tested rocket artillery systems just north of the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia invaded and annexed from Ukraine in 2014. Both sides are preparing for war, while the diplomats try to make peace. Let's bring in our DW correspondent, Nick Connolly, in Kiev. Hi, Nick. It's good to see you. Uh, how were President Putin's remarks received there in Ukraine? 
I think, Sumi, there was little surprise here in Kiev about those comments from Moscow. Um, this, you know, to the Ukrainian uh, ear is all very familiar stuff. Russia, Vladimir Putin not seeing Ukraine as an independent actor, um, merely as a vassal of the West. That was a term used by former Russian President Medvedev recently. Ukraine simply as a pawn in Western games against Russia. That's been the Kremlin's line all along. And people here in Ukraine say this is all uh, a situation we've been living with for the last eight years, that Russia is putting this pressure on us, that Russia doesn't want to see us having our own uh, political line, our own diplomacy. That is the Ukrainian view on these things. And the only thing that changes is that the outside world is paying attention now to what's going on because of those Russian tanks along Ukraine's borders. Well, look, we saw the Ukrainian President Zelensky speaking in our report. He's also announced an increase uh, in Ukrainian troop numbers. Tell us more about that. Indeed, he's said that conscription will end and that Ukraine's army will grow by almost a third. That's all fairly uh, far in the future. That'll take a couple of years to realize. In the present now, there are significant weaknesses in terms of Ukraine's navy, its air force, its army has got a lot stronger in the last years since that conflict in eastern Ukraine began in 2014. But the rest of the military situation is very difficult from Ukraine's perspective without NATO membership and without any guarantees of outside help. When you talk to ordinary Ukrainians for a long time, there was a disconnect between those headlines worldwide wide, people paying a lot of attention to this and people here on the ground seemingly quite relaxed. But the very same people who for long were kind of playing this down and who really didn't seem to feel the heat uh, on their day-to-day -day lives here in Kiev are now often enough telling you that they are taking their money out of banks, that they are making plan Bs, that they are preparing um, escape routes as it were. So I think this is really finally filtering down to ordinary Ukrainians who for the longest time didn't really see any difference between what's going on now and the situation they've been living with for the past eight years. DW's Nick Connolly reporting for us there in Kiev. Thank you so much for that update. And we're going to be coming back to our top story there on the Russia-Ukraine tensions a little bit later in the show. For now, let's get an update of some other headlines from around the world. The World Health Organization has warned countries not to lift all their COVID-19 restrictions at once. The head of the WHO said Omicron should not be underestimated and cautioned that the virus is continuing to evolve. Authorities in Canada have broken up a convoy of trucks that was blocking a major border crossing into the U.S. Truckers staged the protests as part of a larger anti-vaccine demonstration that blocked roads in the capital, Ottawa, over the weekend. And pharmaceutical companies BioNTech and Pfizer are seeking emergency authorization from the U.S. for a vaccine developed for children under the age of five. If approved, the extra low doses would be the first in the country to be made available to children above the age of six months. And now to some other developments in the pandemic. Germany has recorded more than 10 million coronavirus cases since the start of the pandemic. More than 200,000 new infections were recorded on Tuesday alone, according to the Federal Research Institute. Uh, France has started easing COVID-19 restrictions despite record infection numbers in January. Mandatory outdoor mask wearing and capacity limits for large events have been dropped. And Tonga is going into lockdown after port workers delivering humanitarian aid tested positive for the virus. The remote Pacific nation was left devastated by a tsunami and an underwater volcanic eruption last month. Details are emerging after a reported coup in Guinea-Bissau. President Umaro Sissoko Mbalo has said assailants armed with machine guns attacked the government palace for hours while he and the prime minister were inside but that the situation is now under control. The violence in Guinea-Bissau is the latest in a series of attempted military takeovers in West Africa in recent months, most of which have succeeded. 
Gunfire near the government seat in Bissau, forcing bystanders to seek shelter. For hours, President Umaro Sissoko Embalo's whereabouts remained unclear, until he addressed the nation saying several security personnel had been killed in what he called a failed attack against democracy. I was in the middle of the Council of Ministers, with all the members, including the Prime Minister. We were attacked with very heavy weaponry for a duration of five hours, but now everything is under control. The African Union and the UN have both condemned the attempted coup. It is for us clear that uh, coups are totally unacceptable. We are seeing a terrible multiplication of coups uh, and our strong appeal is for soldiers to go back to the barracks and for the constitutional order to be fully in place in the democratic context of today's Guinea-Bissau. Mbalo's opponents had accused the former army general of election fraud after his victory in the December 2019 polls. He had also recently been at odds with his prime minister following a minor government shake-up. Since independence from Portugal in 1974, Guinea-Bissau has experienced four coups and more than a dozen attempted ones. To India now, where there has been a rise in the number of attacks on religious minorities, such as Muslims and Christians. Christians make up just over 2% of the country's population, where most people are Hindu. With a Hindu nationalist government in power, some states have brought in new laws cracking down on religious conversion, making it difficult, for example, for people to convert to Christianity. And some right-wing Hindu groups appear to be taking the law into their own hands. DW's Nimisha Jaiswal traveled to the town of Hubali in the southern state of Karnataka to meet a pastor who has shut down his church in the face of continued abuse. The highlight of Pastor Somu Avradi's week has always been the Sunday service. But now, he's praying alone at his church in Hubli. It is the first time he has been back in more than three months. Last October, as the pastor was on his way to the church, he received urgent phone calls warning him that volunteers linked with Hindu right-wing groups were disrupting the Sunday prayer gathering there. They had barged in and started loudly chanting Hindu hymns. When the pastor arrived to question them, they claimed that they had proof he had tried to forcefully convert a Hindu man in their midst. The pastor said he'd never met the alleged victim before, yet he was still taken to the police station on charges of verbally abusing a man from a protected caste. I was the one who called the police. I was going to file a case against them, but they pushed me aside and started beating me. They beat seven members of my church. They entered the police station and abused and threatened me. No action has been taken against the Hindu group. It was the pastor who spent 11 days in jail and he continues to face charges. It didn't end there. The pastor's family was terrorized in their neighborhood. Their landlord threatened with harm if he didn't evict them. They were forced to move. They also had to pull their daughter out of school because she was being bullied. My children's classmates were harassing them taunting them that their father had been sent to prison. My children were embarrassed. I had to pull them out of school. They haven't been able to return. Over the last year, Christian groups have reported a spike in similar attacks and harassment in Karnataka, especially after plans for a new law were announced. 
The state of Karnataka is in the process of passing an anti-conversion law which targets conversions considered fraudulent or forced. But the definition of what is illegal is very broad and the punishments very strict. Right-wing Hindu groups here strongly support the law. Manjunath Hipsur was amongst the men who stormed Pastor Avaradi's church. He alleges that Christian congregations like Avaradi's brainwash Hindus into rejecting their religion or offer financial incentives to convert. The law, he says, will give them strong grounds to put an end to this. Once the law comes, we can demolish these churches. We are already prepared to demolish them, but we are waiting for the law to be passed. Once it is passed, our hands are no longer tied. We are free to take action. We can catch them and report them to the police. And they'll go to prison. For now, Pastor Avradi visits church members at home and only in areas considered safe. This man and his family were also forced out of their village after the attack on the church. But they say they find comfort in prayer. All they want is the freedom to do so in peace. That report from DW's Nimisha Jaiswal, and she joins us from Delhi for more on this story. Hi, Nimisha. Your reporting shows that these attacks have been going on for some time. So what is the government doing to protect these Christian communities? Well, Sumi, in most of these cases, the government and its representatives are often one of those who are making the allegations. In the case that we just watched, for example, a locally elected representative of the BJP, Narendra Modi's Bharatiya Janata Party, was actually one of the men who led the protests against the pastor and demanded action against them. Now, it's important to note here that the Christian community in India is amongst the oldest in Asia and dates back centuries. But the main concerns of these BJP legislators, as well as right-wing Hindu groups, are those people who are born Hindu and choose to start believing in Christianity. Now, of course, these people are being targeted and there are BJP legislators who are not only witnessing speeches made against them, but also making some themselves, calling for action and sometimes even violence, and of course leading the charge when it comes to introducing anti-conversion laws across the country. And can you tell us more about this anti-conversion bill and what it is intended to do? Well, interestingly, Sumi, when you look at the anti-conversion law in the state of Karnataka, it's actually called the freedom of religion law. And it, it, on the face of it, it's very simple. It prescribes ways to convert. It says that you must notify the authorities a month before converting and also update them a month after converting. Unfortunately, this period is often used for the harassment of these minorities and to actually target them and to harass them into not converting when you look at similar anti-conversion laws in other states. And and this, of course, means that people are afraid to come out about their intentions to convert. The language of what is considered an illegal conversion is also very broad. For example, it charges allurement. So even talking about your religion or offering somebody a Bible could be charged as illegal. And also anybody can file these complaints. It doesn't have to be a family member. It can be a neighbor or a bystander. And also the punishments against these kinds of illegal conversions are very strict. Well, there have been attacks on other minority groups as well. How is all of this impacting the Modi government? 
Well, in terms of criticism, the international community has, of course, recognized the rise in these uh, attacks and has condemned it as well. But domestically, many political analysts believe that these attacks and this kind of treatment could, could actually be lending to the Modi government's popularity. The Bharatiya Janata Party, as well as its, its backing organizations, are seen to be parties that actually support the conversion of India, the development of India as a Hindu Rashtra or a Hindu nation. And these kind of demonizations of minorities are seen to play well into their agenda. So this could range from saying that Christians are forcing Hindus to convert to saying that Muslims are marrying Hindu girls and carrying out love jihad and converting them as well. And this kind of demonization and the victimization of the Hindu community seemingly actually ends up playing well to the Hindu voter base that supports Prime Minister Narendra Modi very strongly. DW's Nimisha Jaiswal in Delhi, thank you so much. And we're going to return to our top story, uh, the standoff between Russia and Ukraine, because we have news of a special investigation to share with you. The Spanish newspaper El País has published documents it says are confidential letters sent by the United States and the NATO alliance to Russia. The leaked documents detailed the U.S. and NATO's formal response to a list of Moscow's demands, chief among them, that NATO rule out admitting Ukraine to the security alliance. They shed more light on the high-stakes diplomacy taking place behind the scenes, including potential nuclear disarmament and trust-building agreements. And we can speak now to DW's Terry Schultz in Brussels for the latest on this story. Terry, good day to you. Uh, what stands out to you from these leaked documents? Hi, Sumi. Well, actually, the first thing that stands out is how similar they are to what we were told were in the letters. Uh, both NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg and U.S. officials um, have laid out in various briefings their positions and what they said they told Moscow. And now we can see on these documents that that is exactly what they told the Russian government. Um, the language is, is extremely similar, not surprising at all. Both sides, both the U.S. and NATO, um, are repeating that they hold Russia are responsible for the current escalation, the current tensions. And they mention um, specifically that Russia has illegally seized Crimea and has forces elsewhere in Ukraine as well, which will surely get under the Kremlin's skin. But there was there was nothing surprising here in either of those letters. And are there any differences you're seeing between both the U.S. and the NATO responses? Well, the U.S. response is is double the size of, of NATO's, four pages versus two. And there are reasons for that, because, of course, NATO doesn't have um, its own missiles, uh, for example, um, like the U.S. does. And that's something that Russia wanted addressed specifically. So in the U.S. letter, it does talk about uh, U.S. willingness to discuss arms control, to discuss um, going back to a, a version of the Intermediate uh, Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which Russia violated and was, was then and dissolved, things that Russia also has an interest in. But both, both letters make clear that without a de-escalation, without the Kremlin addressing these issues and getting its forces out of, uh, away from the border with Ukraine, as well as pulling them out of, of Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova, where they were not invited to be, that um, you know, the, the onus is definitely on the Kremlin at this point. And tell us again, Terry, how the Russian uh, side has responded uh, to these letters. 
We see a letter on the Russian Foreign Ministry website from uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov released yesterday. And one of the things what, that amused me was right there in the headline that it's not even addressed to NATO. Um, Russia likes to sort of diss NATO at every opportunity. And it's addressed to the U.S., Canada and several European countries. And uh, Sergei Lavrov makes, um, makes claims that, that aren't so surprising, given what we've heard both from him and from Russian President Putin, that um, the, the, the U.S. and Europe misunderstand Russia. Russia's position that it's that it's the U.S. and NATO that are destabilizing the European security environment. Um, it goes back to to documents at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe saying that yes, while all countries have the right to choose their alliances, those uh, choices may not be made at the expense of other countries' security. And Russia is simply saying that it's being made so insecure by these decisions uh, by Eastern European countries. DW's Terry Schultz reporting for us there in Brussels. Thanks so much. You're watching DW still to come on our show. Colombia debates what to do with the dozens of hippos first brought there by notorious drug lord Pablo Escobar. We'll have that story for you coming up a little bit later. But first, we have some more headlines for you. At least 25 people are reported dead in the Democratic Republic of Congo after a high-voltage power cable snapped and fell. The incident happened on the outskirts of the capital, Kinshasa, Authorities say the cable hit several homes and a market, killing several people instantly. And in Australia, two large bushfires have prompted evacuations on the outskirts of Perth. An emergency warning has been issued with blistering temperatures and high winds threatened to intensify the blazes in the coming days. The fires have burned through some 100 hectares of land since they began on Tuesday. Beijing will become the first city in history to host both the Summer and Winter Olympics when this year's Games officially begin on Friday. Almost 3,000 athletes will be competing for glory. But with health concerns and political tensions dominating headlines in the buildup, the sports are at risk of becoming a subplot at Beijing 2022. Billions have been invested into making Beijing 2022 an extravagant festival of competition. But the build-up has been about so much more than sport. Politics, for instance. Some nations, including the US and the UK, have declared a diplomatic boycott over human rights issues and will send competitors, but no ministers or officials. Meanwhile, organisers have threatened athletes with punishment for any behaviour or expression that they deem in breach of Chinese law and will expect the IOC to rigorously enforce its own rules limiting protests. In the Olympic Charter, there are very strict rules. So for the medal ceremonies and during the competitions, political protests are not permitted. On other occasions, like at press conferences or during interviews or on personal platforms, the athletes are free to express their opinions. But the athletes must be responsible for what they say. Due to COVID, athletes and journalists will be kept in secure bubbles, while no spectator tickets will be sold to the public. Organisers say health and safety are paramount. Of course, COVID countermeasures are still on top of our agenda. We have been making effective measures and everything is under control. Without a safe games, there would be no games. So we will make sure that the health and safety of all participants is our top priority. A total of 32 new cases were reported by Olympic authorities on Wednesday alone. 
As expected, the pandemic is proving to be one of several headaches for the organisers of Beijing 2022. Colombia is facing a dilemma over what to do with dozens of hippos. They were first brought there by notorious drug lord Pablo Escobar. He was killed by police almost 30 years ago. And since then, a growing population of hippos has been taking over the countryside near his former ranch. Our reporter traveled to Medellin in Colombia to discover why scientists and activists are divided over how to deal with the animals. A legacy of drug kingpin Pablo Escobar and a problem that has grown over the years. Colombia's hippos, now the largest population outside of Africa, which is their natural habitat. The so-called king of cocaine brought four of the pachyderms to his ranch. They've now multiplied to more than 90 and are causing havoc. They like it here, especially in high summer when the hippos gather. They swim out there and then reappear somewhere else. They rammed my boat and tipped it over because you can't see them at night. The males aren't so aggressive, but one hit my boat with a big bang. The hippos in Colombia are now the subject of public debate. Animal rights activists insist that the large mammals are completely innocent. But environmentalists criticize the effects the hippos have on the ecosystem and the indigenous fauna. Scientists support an end to the hippos. It sounds rather harsh, but we must clearly state that it must be done. I think that we from the academy must be able to explain why this must be done, even if no one is happy about it. No one wants to kill the hippos. But it's the lesser of two evils in this scenario. The environmental agency has started with harmless birth control, a contraceptive that works with both male and female hippos. The medicine, donated by U.S. animal welfare authorities, is given by injection. Now we must wait and see how the medicine works. Then we'll know if it really will lead to fewer calves. But young hippos often disappear even without medication. The semi-aquatic animals have achieved a kind of cult status among people who wish to imitate Pablo Escobar. Two of the little ones have already been taken away. They were sold. There are a lot of rich people in this country who want to have something like this. The last young hippo was brought to a man who is said to be very powerful. So now there's a market for these exotic animals in Colombia, and they lack natural enemies. That's why this is the largest hippo population outside of Africa where they are indigenous. And we just have time for a reminder of our top story. Russian President Vladimir Putin has accused the West of ignoring Moscow's concerns about regional security after the U.S. and NATO responded to demands over the Ukraine crisis. The U.S. and Russia have resumed talks with a phone call between Secretary of State Blinken and Foreign Minister Lavrov without a breakthrough. Coming up next, our show Made in Germany asks the question, 
can capitalism ever truly be environmentally friendly? Stay tuned for that coming up in just a few minutes. A billion-dollar business for the few, gross exploitation for the many, and pollution for everyone. The Chinese fashion giant Shein eclipses anything like it before. Ever faster and ever cheaper, but it will cost the world so much more than money. Made in Germany. Next on DW. A small island with big plans. La Réunion in the Indian Ocean. The French Overseas Department is making a complete transition to renewable energies. It's set to be completed by 2028. Eco Africa. In 60 minutes on DW. Everything challenging. First, I'm Arabic, I'm Muslim. So much different culture between here and there. So challenging for everything. I think it was worth it for me to come to Germany. I got my license to work as a swimming instructor here. And now I teach children and adults to swim. What's your story? Take part. Share it on infomigrants.net.